Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. Welcome. Welcome to This Is Gonna Sound Weird, a podcast about all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. My name is Sydney. I'm one of your host. Lo- I was gonna say lovely host, but I don't want to hype myself up too much. <laughs> uh, Gotta stay humble. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm Taylor. Uh, also, just a host, not a lovely host. Not this week, anyways. <laughs> no, nope. no. Today, this week, been a hot mess. Uh, my couch uh, from my new apartment got delivered, and they called me at seven thirty in the morning. Was like, we're gonna be there in thirty minutes. So I was like, ah, running around waiting for them and then they didn't get there for like another hour and a half so you know that was a lot of unnecessary stress so yeah and i had a i had a little bump up on friday got rear-ended at a stop sign you know had some japanese food in the car got had a new moo from walmart in the car the moo uh unfortunately was a little distressed but she made it out alive um i was fine i just had to comfort the moo uh <laughs> but i've been you know <laughs> Running around with the dang insurance company all week. So that's fun. Um, but actually, I have been doing something fun. Okay, have you watched Squid Game yet? No, everybody on the internet won't shut up about Squid Games. Is it worth me <laughs> watching? Okay, so I, me, I started watching the first episode like last Friday. And I didn't know if you were going to have to read subtitles. Because I knew it was, uh, I think it's South Korean. Um, I don't, I guess they filmed it there, um, and that's where, like, it was originally, like, aired or whatever. And so, at first I was like, now, if I have to read subtitles, I'm just not good at that because I get bored. Uh, but they have dubbed over it with, like, voices, and the lips don't match up, which I'm like, eh, you know, it's whatever. Uh, and the, the voices are a little weird, but if you can get past, like, the first episode, I know everybody says that about a show, they're like, just get past the first episode, but, like, the first episode's really just, like, kind of a little bit of backstory on, like, kind of the main character you're gonna follow. I am a person who, I don't like scripted TV anymore, I almost can't watch scripted TV at all anymore, and I have watched six episodes in, like, a period of three days, and I really enjoy it. I think, if you listen to this podcast, you'll enjoy it. Hmm. Yeah, I should give it a listen because I also am not a huge fan of scripted television. Well, like, newer scripted television. I yeah. can get behind, like, I pr- I'm re-watching Sex in the City for, like, the seventh time, and I'm not gonna apologize for it. You know, some of it a little dated, but the show holds up many years later. But I just would rather rewatch something. Also, Netflix will put out something, and it'll just be hot garbage half the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're ever going to get that new season of Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think maybe people like it because it's not, like... I feel like there's got to be a different, like, flair to it since it's not, like, an American-produced TV show. I feel like, that you know, it's a little different. There's got It's got a little spice to it that uh, maybe you wasn't expecting. Yeah, and I just feel like... It's just going to be completely, I feel like, completely different because it's, like, is it based in, like, a post-apocalyptic world or something? Like, it's not, Mm -hmm. like, like, in the United States where it's, like, the Outer Banks, it's just some teenagers hanging out. 
It's not in a post-apocalyptic world. It is like, I tried to explain it to Brandon and I made it sound so shitty. And then last night when I was watching it, he like watched one of the like big scenes. He was like, I think I'll like this. And I was like, see? Which honestly, when you first start watching it, it's kind of boring. But uh, I will say it's very gruesome. Like very. So, I mean, if you're listening to this show, you probably don't care. But like, probably don't watch it with your like kids. Um, because that would not be great. But yeah. It's good, Fair. and it's, like, it's just weird, and it's, like, kind of psychological a little bit. It's, like, ooh, it's a little spooky. Uh, you know, the ending might be shitty, but I'm enjoying the ride, so. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you do, like, gruesome things, uh, then it probably will work for you, and you're probably listening to the show, because this week we mm-hmm. are talking about UK murders. You know? Mm-hmm. Probably not a light subject. I don't know. Actually, maybe it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what... Taylor's talking about. Well, actually, I do because she texted me about it. My topic, not so light. Now, that being said, I've been known to pop off on this show a time or two. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I, I'm i using some discretion this week with my topic. Okay. But uh, I'm going to put a little bit of a trigger warning on mine just because it do involve children. See, I avoid children, right? Because when we first started this show, Sydney was like, no children's stuff. And I was like, noted. So, uh, she's breaking her own rules. Um, but I mean, when you're talking about murder, it's all bad. It's all bad. It's terrible. Mine is pretty bad. Also, mine is uh, actually quite long. Uh, so. Yeah, I didn't mine, expect it to be so long. I, I do have the no children rule. But <laughs> this particular and i guess i'll i'll go ahead and tell you what it is because i'm going first this week um i am doing mine on the moors murderers or the moors murders and mm-hmm. uh i um so it's ian brady and mira henley and the mm-hmm. only reason i did it is because i've like i've heard of them in true crime and you know there's the iconic picture of the two of them i didn't mm-hmm. know much about them so i was like didn't you know either. But I actually literally listened to a podcast about them, like, two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I didn't know much about them. And I was like, okay, this is, I'll, I'll take one for the team. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're just going to censor some things. But, I did yeah, I just yeah. feel like they're, when you look up big true crime people, I always see their faces. And I don't know much about them. Yeah, I didn't either, really. Because I've heard, I've heard true crime podcasts tell stories about them. But for some reason, I always like, I've always glazed over. But then when I listened to this one podcast this week, I was like, now that was kind of interesting. So we'll, we'll see if you can make it interesting. <laughs> no, it's going to be very uninteresting. So please strap in. Okay. So like I said, I'm doing my, <laughs> I'm doing my story on the Moors murderers uh, who are Ian Brady and Mira Hendley. My sources, I used Wikipedia as well as a BuzzFeed Unsolved video. So Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland on January 2nd, 1938. His mother Peggy was an unmarried woman and the identity of his father was unknown. So with the little support that his mother had, she was forced to put him into the care of Mary and John Sloan, who was a local couple with four children of their own when he was just a few months old. However, his mother did remain in his life throughout his childhood. And I want to make a interesting point that it is believed that Brady tortured animals as a child. 
However, it's not confirmed. Like, you know, obviously there's Mm -hmm. no written documentation. And Brady, for the most part, objects to these accusations. But I did want to mention that because I feel like oftentimes when we talk about, you know, serial killers, that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that Brady was pretty smart. In fact, he was accepted into Shawlands Academy, which is a school for above-average pupils. But Brady was still a troubled teen. He was often in trouble for breaking and entering, and at age 15, he actually left the academy to work at a shipyard. He found himself in more legal trouble after threatening his girlfriend with a knife after she went to a dance with another boy. And by his 17th birthday, he was on probation and living with his mother. And from there, he pretty much struggles to keep a job, always falling into trouble with the law and struggling with alcoholism. However, in an effort to better himself and make a change, he spends many hours in his room teaching himself how to do bookkeeping. So he went to the local public library and checked out a bunch of books on bookkeeping and was able to earn a job as a clerical worker at Millward's Wholesale Distribution. And his co-workers saw him as quiet and punctual, but also short-tempered. Mm-hmm. Now, Mira Henley was born in Crumpshaw, England, on July 23rd, 1942. Her father was an abusive alcoholic, and the family's home was in poor condition, So, Hindley was sent to live with her grandmother after her sister Maureen was born in 1946. Mir's father was in the military and was known to be a hard man and expected his daughter to be equally as tough. He taught Mira to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. In an instance when she was eight, a local boy had scratched her and she had run to her father, you know, like, oh, I got hurt, you know, this boy scratched me. And he threatened to, quote, leather her if she did not retaliate so henley tracked the boy back down and beat him mm-hmm. not only did henley experience violence at home but her father rewarded her for being violent outside of the home so basically like you're gonna be the bully on the street so she had quite I an interesting childhood i got slapped one time in the fourth grade uh, and I'm not gonna lie, the first question my family asked was, did you slap her back? And I was like, no. And, uh, they weren't happy about that. And here I am today, too scared to tell the insurance company what I really think about what's going on. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I um, don't know. I was definitely the kid that if you pushed me, I would push you back. Like, fully. Yeah, <laughs> and then, and the bullshit was... I would get in trouble for that. I'm like, no. Listen. I'm just trying to stick up for myself. I knew I'd get in trouble, and that was my biggest uh, fear. The the man. I'm always scared of the man. Uh, Society. I I was and I wasn't scared of the man, because I always got in trouble for talking, like, growing up. I was always Mm. told to be quiet. So, like, I was always... We always ran the risk of my color card going from green to yellow, but um, it still it still didn't feel good when it did get turned to yellow. It hurt, and I would go home and I'd be yeah. talking mad shit to my mom. I'd be like, "You ain't gonna believe what Miss Ring fucking did today. She took my fucking card, she put it to yellow for every fucking body." Uh, that only happened to me once in kindergarten, and I proceeded to cry 
immediately after it happened. Uh, so yeah, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I just could not handle it. Getting in even a little bit of trouble, it would send me over the edge. (laughs) (laughs) This is why me and Taylor in college, like, uh, we always were like, could never like do any like tomfool like we would like you know we we had fun in college but like you couldn't do no tomfoolery like people who would just like no. up and steal like a traffic cone I'd be like this is too much no. <laughs> they're on no, to us no 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 and if I had it at my house I would assume that the police are gonna come knocking down my door because somehow they saw me and now they've got a warrant out for my arrest uh, <laughs> and now they're coming for me that may just be anxiety couldn't say but yeah we'll never we'll never know. <laughs> I had to worry about my RA coming in and be like, is that a fucking traffic cone? No, it's a lamp. <laughs> it's a lamp. So in June 1957, one of Henley's closest friends, Michael Higgins, drowned in a reservoir, which caused her a lot of emotional pain. She was supposed to go to, with Higgins that day and blamed herself because she felt like she could have saved him. So after this, she turned to Catholicism and actually became baptized as a Catholic. And she ended up getting a job as a junior clerk at an engineering firm and began taking judo classes at a local school. However, she struggled to keep a training partner in class because she often was slow to release her grip. In January 1961, Henley got a job at the same company Brady worked at as a typist. And after learning about his criminal background, Ben became infatuated by him. She would talk in depth about her interest in him in her diary and once the two began dating her diary entries became more and more disillusioned while their dating practices appeared normal you know they would go to the movies or whatever their interests were unsettling so they would go on dates to see x-rated films they shared mutual interests in the nazi party and henley actually became infatuated with the ideal of the Aryan perfection which you know is like blonde hair blue eyes and so she bleached her hair like platinum blonde as a result in Henley's diary entries it's clear Ian had the ability to manipulate her ideas but also how willing she was to be manipulated after being together for a short time he had convinced her that there was no god despite her being a devout catholic and in her diary she even states that brady could have told her the earth was flat and she would have believed it the more they dated the more henley changed her appearance she began to dress more risque and the couple could spend hours of time reading over books covering topics from philosophy as well as crime and torture The two planned bank robberies, which coincidentally never happened, and visited shooting ranges together. The two became interested in photography so much they actually built their own darkroom. And in 1963, Ian began talking of committing the, quote, perfect murder, as he was obsessed with the novel Compulsion, which is about two men who attempt to murder a 12-year-old boy and escape the death penalty because of their age. Now, in June of 1963, the pair moved in with Henley's grandmother, and on July 12th, the two found their first victim, Pauline Reed, who was a classmate of Henley's younger sister, Maureen. Henley had approached Pauline as Um, and asked for her help in finding a glove that she had lost. Because Henley was an acquaintance, Pauline, uh, you know, she obliged. You mean, you're like, oh, yeah, you're Maureen's older sister? Yeah, I'll help you find your glove. Yeah. 
But Brady ended up sexually assaulting the young girl before stabbing her to death. And police would investigate the disappearance, but they didn't have much to go off of because no one knew who Pauline was last seen with before she disappeared. So there wasn't much to go off of, and the trail kind of goes cold. And later that year, on November 23rd, the couple set their sights on 12-year-old John Crimbride, who worked at a local supermarket. He had been at the market when Henley approached the young boy, asking her to help him locate or help her locate a missing glove, just like she had used to lure Pauline. John agreed to help, and Henley took him to the moor, where Brady sexually assaulted the boy and strangled him. Brady made sure to take pictures of Henley standing over the young boy before the two buried him in a shallow grave. And that's something that is. I don't get too much into this, but he is constantly taking pictures, like taking pictures of their victims or taking mm-hmm. pictures of Henley and sort of like sexually explicit pick like, you know, poses, which I feel like back in the day was probably oh very sensationalized. I mean, now, you know, people send dick pics all the time, so it's not like that crazy. <laughs> uh, but it's int- I think it's even more so that like, Back then, they had to take the initiative to have a black groom, and they had to, like, you know, develop these pictures. So, like... Oh, yeah. He he thought a lot about this. Oh, yeah. And a huge search was conducted to find the boy. Missing posters were posted all over town, and over 2,000 volunteers searched the area, but nothing was found. Later that year, the day after Christmas, the couple approached 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey at a local carnival and... Uh, lured her away by asking her to help them with their grocery bags to the car. Which I I guess because like growing up we were always told like adults don't need your help. Like we were just like hammered uh-huh. that as a child. Like don't get kidnapped. If a kid, if an adult can't find, you know their dog, it's not your help, you're a kid. But like it's just crazy how easy this was for them. They were like hey, can you help us get our groceries to the car? And the little girl was like, yeah, of course. Like, it's just crazy how much the times have changed. Yeah, because if you're a little kid and your mom's not like, or you don't have this stranger danger, like, put down your throat, then you Mm -hmm. probably be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Because I feel like as a little kid, you trust adults, probably back then. uh, But, you know, when we were in elementary school, they'd show you those crappy videos of some man pulling up in a van and, opening the door and be like hey little kid i got some ice cream in here if you want to get in and then the kid will be like no i will not get in that van with you you're a stranger and then the stranger will be like oh rats and then he'll drive away mm-hmm. but yep, it works yep. uh which I, I mean like i still don't talk to strangers i don't i don't um i mean i have to talk to strangers at work but like I don't know. It's like, it's that thing, like, when people are trying to make small talk with you at, like, the grocery store, and you're like, I don't want Mm. anything to do with this. Like, I don't want to be rude, but I'm just trying to get my fucking Mm. groceries. I'm not trying to make a connection. Sorry. (laughs) When I'm in public, I don't talk to people. I've started wearing headphones every single time I go into the grocery store. Oh, I definitely do that. I wear my AirPods, and uh, that really Mm -hmm. helped me the other day, because I had my AirPods in, and I rolled up to the grocery store, and there was a man breakdancing. And he tried to holler at me when I came in. I was just trying to get my cart, and I was like, oh, gotta go. 
Look, my uh, ignoring of people in public even goes toward children. And not children who need my help. But we were walking into the grocery store the other day and there was a little kid out there, you know, peddling for some money for her cheerleading team. And I didn't have no money. And I usually just don't stop for nobody like that unless, like, they really pull on my heartstrings. And they always say when you're a salesman, you always get the husband or you always get the man. They stop. So Brandon stops, right? And he's like, oh, what you doing? She's like, it's my cheerleading team. And he was like, okay, well, when I come back out, I'll give you some money. Well, we didn't have no cash. And the only thing that the grocery store puts out a $20 bill. So he dropped a $20 bill in that little girl's bucket. And all she had had in there so far was like a couple pennies. I was like, damn, that was all she needed to make today. Now she can go home. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon's I was like, a, a sucker. $20 bill? I need that. <laughs> So, the couple documented the girl's death with pictures and audio recordings, which they later left at a local train station. The couple took Leslie Ann to their home where Brady bound and sexually assaulted her. Just like after John's disappearance, a huge search for Leslie Ann was conducted, but sadly, nothing was found. Early in the evening of June 16th, 1964, Henley asked 12-year-old Keith Bennett, who was on his way to his grandmother's house, for help loading some boxes into her car, and afterwards she offered to drive him home. So Brady was in the backseat of the van, and on the drive home, Henley pulled over to Saddleworth Moor, where Brady and Keith got out to look for, you guessed it, a lost glove, which I'm like, listen, lady. I, I know that back in the day, they probably were some nice leather gloves, but you better just head your butt down to the Macy's and get you another pair. I got, I got yeah, go that's just so weird. <laughs> yeah. Also, because I just feel like gloves and socks, I lose all the time. Yeah, I feel like a little kid, I feel like the dog excuse is always better. I've lost mm-hmm. my dog. Mm-hmm. But I guess... uh. I don't know, maybe it was cold out. She was really worried about that one hand being cold. I don't know. (laughs) So, after about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone, having sexually assaulted and strangled Keith to death with a piece of string. On the evening of October 6, 1965, Henley and Brady drove to a local train station so Brady could select their next victim. Brady returned to the car with 17-year-old Edward Evans, who was an apprentice engineer, and Brady had persuaded Edward to join him for a sexual encounter and introduced Henley as his sister. And it's kind of mixed whether or not they actually met at the train station. Um, There's, you know, there's mixed reports that they had met at a, like, a gay club, you know, in the past, and that he recognized him when he saw him at the train station, or that he had parked at the train station but had gone to the club that evening um but regardless uh he he knew that edward was interested in men and he kind of manipulated him with that Mm. so the pair drove edward home and shared a bottle of wine with him but this particular evening they did not act alone henley's brother-in-law david smith who was married to her sister maureen who had, uh, who had a troubled past, had become in awe of Brady, much like Henley had. Because Brady kind of had that, I don't know, like that charisma. He was able to kind of talk and manipulate people, so mm. easy manipulator. So while inside the home, Brady attempted to rob Edward, but he fought back. 
and Edward, I mean, he was an old, he was bigger than their past victims. He wasn't a child, so he was doing pretty good. Now, reports of what happened are mixed. Henley's report reports that Smith was waiting outside for them to give him a signal. So basically, he was waiting outside the house and that she was going to flash a light and then he was going to come in and join them. And it was Smith who struck the boy with, uh, you know, the hatchet. But Smith maintains that he was actually in the kitchen when he heard a scream and found Brady and Henley standing over Edward when he came into the room. Brady attempted to quiet Edward, but when he would not stop screaming, he started hitting him over the head with a hatchet and strangled him with a string and a pillow. During the struggle, Brady sprained his ankle, and Edward's body was too heavy for Smith to carry out to his car by himself, so they wrapped the body in plastic sheeting and put it in a spare bedroom. Smith later went home to his wife, Maureen, Henley's sister, and he told her everything, what he had done with Henley and Brady, um, but he had also told Henley and Brady, listen, I'm going to return tomorrow with, he has a son, with my, my child's stroller and help you transport this body the next day to the moor so you can bury it. Um, but once he got home, he just completely breaks down and um, he calls the police and tells them everything. So Superintendent Bob... Talbot arrived at Henley's doorstep dressed as a bread delivery man and asked if her husband was home. Henley insisted that Brady was not home, but after the officer identified himself, she let him into the home where he found Brady in the living room writing a note to his employer about his ankle. Talbot told the couple that he was investigating, quote, an act of violence involving guns that was reported to happen the night before. Henley denied that any violence had happened and allowed the police to search the home. And upon searching the home, they found that the spare bedroom had been locked. And Henley explained that it was her workplace, um, and so police were like, hey, well, can, can you get the spare key? Um, and when they started to kind of question her about, like, can you open this, you know, why can't you open this, um, that's when Brady kind of stepped in and he was ended up arrested for suspicion of murder. So, the bodies of Leslie, Ann, and John, and Edward were found in the moor after a local child brought them to the area claiming that the couple had shown her the place several times before. Both Brady and Henley were charged with the murder of Leslie Ann, John, and Edward, and Henley was also charged as an accessory for harboring Brady after John's murder. Their trial lasted 14 days and included testimony from psychologists who maintained neither Brady nor Henley were capable of showing empathy or feeling empathy. The entire 16-minute recording of Leslie Ann's murder was played in court. Brady was charged. Yeah, it's... Ooh. That is what is a lot. And I'm not going to get into what all happened, but, like, it's a lot. And, like, the little drummer boy is playing in the back. How do you even show that? Um, so it's a, it's a audio recording. Uh Okay. I mean, still not I mean, good. And I mean, they but, they, uh, they also had have pictures just... of her body, and you know, their other victims. Oh yeah. Um. So it's still a lot. Um. Uh, but the the thought of hearing her just oh god. Yeah. Mm-mm. So Brady was charged in all counts, while Henley was acquitted for the murder of John. However, Henley was charged as an accessory for John's murder and charged with the murder of Leslie and Edward. On May 6, 1966, Brady and Henley were sentenced to life in prison for the murders of Edward and Leslie Ann. 
Brady also received a life sentence for the murder of John. And the judge in the case believed that Henley, while she was guilty, it was Brady's influence that prompted her to commit these crimes and that if removed from his influence, wouldn't be as dangerous. Which, like, um, here's my... I don't know. Here's my 10 cents on it. I think she came from, she came from a situation as a child where she was used to having someone tell her how to act. So it was probably easy for her to slip into that. Now, in that same regard, she is her own person. She did make her own decisions. Um, you know, but I mean, I can see he definitely is a master manipulator, um, but, you know, she's not fully, out. you know, she's, she's, she's still fucking guilty. No. And it also doesn't sound like she ever said anything like, hey, maybe let's not do this. And then he was like, no, we really need to do this because blah, 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 blah. It kind of seems like she was like, yeah, this will be fine. I'm totally fine with this. And, and most people who are, you know, absolutely or like not a danger or whatever, if it wasn't for this one person, they're not going to. Uh, just be so on board with it yeah and uh henley does admit that brady had been both mentally and physically abusive she claims that she had been drugged by him and that he had blackmailed her with pornographic pictures that he had taken of her um he also she also claims that he had threatened to kill his sister maureen so it does support this theory of Mm. manipulation um but like you also like from the second she starts writing in her diary and starts dating him, you just know that she's infatuated with him and, like, you know. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know what I mean? Again, listen, this is what I'm gonna say. You can have a troll pass, but just don't fucking murder people. Is that too much to fucking ask? Well, I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but to some of these people, it seems like they would be <laughs> So, police later discovered that Henley and Brady were actually responsible for the murder of five children, not just three, when they admitted to killing Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Police even took Brady and Henley out of prison in an attempt to locate the bodies of the children. Pauline was found in the moor where the other children had been found. However, Keith's body was never discovered. While in prison, Henley became a born-again Christian and attempted to get parole several times. However, her fellow inmates maintained that she was evil and the families of her victims worked to keep her locked away. And again, that's another thing. I'm like, you know it's bad when other criminals are like, nah, this bitch is crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, yeah, just because you say you were born again Christian, that ain't gonna help you get out of jail, honey. I mean, you can fake also, that. Also, in the one video, it talks about how a lot of times when she would try to gain parole, she would do it through, like, you know, trying to make connections with, like, powerful men. So, it also seems like she knows how to work the system. You know, she knows, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a lady. Mm-hmm. I can probably manipulate men. So, like, you know, she's not completely helpless. So, despite still carrying a torch for Brady, Henley would eventually write a letter to him stating that they were over. And Brady was as manipulating as ever in prison. Once going, like, so he would often do this. He would often go on to hunger strikes in order to gain special treatment. Because when you don't eat, you get to go to the hospital and you get fawned over. 
Um, He even was found communicating with younger boys in the same hospital where he was being held for treatment after his hunger strikes. Luckily, you know, the guards were smart and they quickly figured this out. So they were able to remove any young men from the floor that he was being held on. But still. Mm. And in 2002, Henley died due to respiratory failure. Before her death, she gave her lawyer letters that she had sent back and forth between her and Brady, as well as, you know, her diary entries that chronicalized the abuse she claimed Brady inflicted on her. And Brady died in May 2017 of natural causes. The more murders have left a mark on the town of Manchester and have gone on to inspire several songs, including the Smiths, like one of the very first Smith songs released called Suffer Little Children. And and that is the story of the more murderers or more murders, Ian Brady and Maureen Marie Henley. But what i thought well her sister was Uh, yep that's 100 percent what it is that's 100 her name is mira (laughs) (laughs) i knew it was wrong but the uh, words had already left my lips look too many m names yeah but uh yeah that they are did they ever say why like why they did it or is it just because they felt like it Say that again. Like, did they have, like, a reason? I don't know. Um, I don't know why they specifically were interested in children. I mean, it's obvious that they had, you know, they were fucked up and they had an obsession with murder and pain. Um, But, yeah, I don't know why they, unless it was just easy for them because, you know, children are easy to manipulate. Um but yeah, I don't, I don't know why they chose their victims the way they did. I mean, to me, it seems obvious that perhaps Brady had some fantasies, you know, that he was trying to fulfill. That's true, um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Weird. Which, I was looking at pictures of them while you were talking, because I've seen, obviously, like, the most famous pictures, which kind of just look like they're mugshots. Mm-hmm. But then there's also pictures of them just, like, hanging out and, like... They don't look scary. Like, if you were a little kid and somebody came... Like, if you're a little kid living in London or Manchester or whatever in the, you know, 1970s or whatever this was, like, they don't look like people that you would be like, oh my gosh, please get away from me. You're so creepy. Like, you probably would help them. Oh, yeah. Because Myra or Mira, she looked like a nice just lady. Yeah. Wearing, like, cute little skirts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the mugshot picture, she's, like, you can tell, like, she's shamed to be messed with. But, like, if you see the candid pictures, you're like, oh, they just mm-hmm. kind of look a normal couple. And I think it also helps that it's, this is in, the, like, the 60s where everyone dressed up nicer. You know what I mean? It's not like they're looking frumpy. They're looking nice yeah. in their pencil skirts and their their suit jackets. Mm-hmm. See? But then, now you're like, you can't trust nobody. Because I feel like, you know, you think, oh, well, I can trust a wife and a husband no. together. But no, you can't. Can't even trust, you can't trust no, nobody. No, which I feel like, we've talked about this in, on this show before, how, um, like, a lot of times people are like, oh, if it's a couple, I feel more inclined 
to go in because, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know. People, I guess people trust mm-hmm. women, but I don't trust nobody. So, if I'm hitchhiking and I see some people come by, you can fuck right on off. Yeah. Which, I was, I told the story where the girl was trapped in that, like, Yes, box. that's the one I'm talking about. She had yep. gotten in the car with them because they, because they also, it was a husband and a wife and children. Like, in that case, you're like, they ain't no way. Especially children on top of it. But see, you never know. You just there was, in know. fact, a way. So, stay vigilant out there, people. Don't hitchhike unless you absolutely have to. And in that case, just, like, go to, I don't know, go to a, a Sheets. I've heard that Sheets are a good, safe place. And then figure it out from there. Maybe ask the Sheets employee if they know, uh, if they could take you home. Maybe. <laughs> the Sheets employee might think you're trying to kill them, so. That's true. Well, thank you for that You're story. You're welcome. I try not to make it as horrible as it was, but, I mean, it's, pretty, it's still pretty bad. Yep, mine's also pretty bad. Um, so, I'm doing mine on a man named Dennis Nielsen. Now, the podcast that I listened to that I said um, covered the story you just told, Literally, last night, I'd already written most of this story, and I was going through the podcast, and it's Rotten Mango. Uh, it's the by Stephanie Sue, you know, the girl that does the mukbangs, yes. or mukbangs, I'm not sure how you say it, on I've listened to a lot of her stuff, because she does, she does some dark stuff um, on her podcast anyways, and so I was listening to, I was like going through episodes last night, because I kind of am skipping around, and I saw one, and it was like, the British Jeffrey Dahmer, and I was like, eh, I don't really want to listen to that, but then when I kept doing some research on this guy, I was like, wait, this guy is who they call the British Jeffrey Mm. Dahmer, so I went to sleep last night listening to the episode that she did on the story I'm telling today. Um, so, obviously, one of my sources is Rotten Mango. It's episode 32. Uh, she did a really in-depth deep dive because she does, like, one case per episode. And it's, like, an hour, 30-minute episode. But, obviously, for the purposes of this show, I'm giving you a shortened version. Yeah. Um, and if you've never watched her videos, I enjoy watching it because she eats everything with chopsticks. And I find it fascinating. And I'm talking, like, chicken wings. Like, bone-in chicken wings. How does she do it? <laughs> Uh, is impressive. Yeah. I haven't watched the videos, but I might start watching them because when I run out of podcast episodes, I'll have I'll have to do something. And she's fun to listen to. Uh, so, yes, we got wikipedia.com, biography.com, uh, the Dennis Nilsson page, uh, and we got insider.com, 10 gruesome murder cases you've probably never heard of by Sarah Greenfest. Dennis Nilsson was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburgh, Scotland. Uh, he was the second of three children who were born to his parents, Elizabeth Duthie White and Olav Magnus Mokshim. Uh, but they ended up uh, changing their last name to Nilsson. Uh, so Dennis's father was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the German occupation of Norway during World War II. And so around this time is when Dennis's parents met each other, and after just a short time uh, time of dating, the two got married in uh, May of 1942, and they both ended up moving into Elizabeth's parents' home. Uh, But the couple's marriage was not great because Olav uh, did not take his married life very seriously and he didn't take much time for his wife and she really wanted to move out of her parents' house, but he was like, you know, I'm just, I'm chill how we are. 
And so Elizabeth's mother didn't think that the marriage was all that great. Um, and after the birth of their third child, her mother said that they had, quote, rushed into a marriage without thinking. And I guess she was right because in 1948, they got a divorce. So, you know, obviously not the best start out, you know, getting a divorce as a young kid. It happens a lot. Um, but here we are. So, as a kid, though, Dennis was quiet, but he was described as adventurous. He remembers, like, fond memories of his childhood. He would go on picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mom and his grandparents and his brothers and his sisters. And he remembers his grandma would take him on long walks. And he was pretty close with her. He was also uh, really close with his grandfather. And he thought of his grandfather as his great hero and protector. But... In 1951, Dennis's grandfather's health started to decline, uh, but he continued to work because, you know, it wasn't declining too bad, but, you know, he was older. Uh, he was a fisherman, so he kept working. Uh, but on October 31st, 1951, while he was fishing in the North Sea, the grandfather had a heart attack and passed away at the age of 62. Now, this death was very sudden for the family, and they were obviously heartbroken, and especially Dennis was heartbroken. And on the day of the grandfather's funeral services, his mother asked him um, if he would like to go see his grandfather, um, and Dennis said yes. And so his mother took him into the room where his grandfather was laying in the open coffin, and this apparently tra like traumatized Dennis. Uh, he was about six years old. I mean, he would later claim that this is partly what led to his behavioral psychopathy, which I'm like, they were like, at the funeral home, like at the funeral. And I don't know in like the UK if it's not like common to have an open casket, but like pretty much everybody who in my family who's died, especially like old people who just die of natural causes or, you know, they had cancer. It's always an open coffin. Yeah, I don't... So, you know, you, I mean, you always I, see the body. I feel like I could see... Like, don't get me wrong. It would traumatize me. I feel like it, it wouldn't do great things for me. But I wouldn't be like, this is why I'm going to start killing people. Yeah, I mean, when my grandpa died, I distinctly remember that uh, my little brother was, like, really, really close with him. And he was, like, real young. And so he wanted to, like, give him a kiss because he didn't really know what was going on. So he kissed him in the coffin, oh God. Uh, you know, in the casket. And then my mom, my mom was like, hey, do you want to give Papa a kiss? And I don't think I was in like fourth grade and I was like old enough to know that this is a little creepy, but I also didn't want to be like, no. So I gave him a kiss and uh, I will say that it was cold. That, that's all weird. I could think of. It was, it had to be cold. I'll just give him a little air kiss. Uh, but you know... I wouldn't say that I was traumatized. I remember it not as a terrible memory. I mostly remember it because, you know, I felt sad for my little brother. Um, but yeah, not traumatizing. Weird, definitely. Um, I probably wouldn't do it again. Uh, but uh, not <laughs> you, traumatizing. You wouldn't recommend it, but you also are not going to go on a killing spree because of it. No. Yeah. So he could, you know, I, I, he's been a little overdramatic in my mind. Um but following his grandfather's death, Dennis became more quiet and withdrawn and would often stand alone at the harbor and he would watch the herring boats come in and out 
which is kind of sad because, you know, he was missing his grandpa, so he was going and watching the fishermen come in and out. And at home, he would rarely participate in the family activities, and he would retreat from any attempts by his family when they would try to show, like, affection towards him. Um, and then, and it was either 1954 or 1955, he had a, another traumatic experience when he was, like, at the harbor or he was at the beach, and he, like, fell in the water and he started drowning, and he was almost about to be dragged out to sea. And he initially started panicking, and he was flailing his arms around. And I guess when he was kind of, you know, in that state, he was kind of freaking out. For some reason, he thought that, uh, like, his grandpa was going to come save him. Like, he was having almost just, like, some sort of hallucination type of thing. Um, but somebody, luckily, was there, and they were able to drag him ashore, um... And it wasn't his grandfather, but luckily he, well, luckily and not luckily, I guess, he was saved. Um, and then after this incident, uh, the mother decided that they were going to move, she was going to move the family out of the grandparents' house because they had been living with their grandparents still this whole time. Um, and around this time, when they moved out of the house, uh, his mother got remarried to a man named Andrew Scott, and she ended up having four more children with Andrew. And this led to Dennis being even more withdrawn and lonely feeling, which I'm like, at some point is sad, but he's kind of doing it to himself a little bit because they, they said, you know, even when his family tries to give him like some affection, he's like, no, thank you. Um, and then when he started puberty, uh, you know, this is when his life really started to change because he realized that he was gay and he was initially very confused, very ashamed, um, obviously because it was back in the... I think it was like 60s, like 50s. Um, so it wasn't as accepted, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, he kept it hidden from both his family and it said the few friends that he had. I was like, man, well, kick this, a man while he's down. They really. <laughs> this is really um, Jeffrey Dahmer. So I can see why they. It really is. And the weird thing is, when I was listening to The Rotten Mango, they were like, it's really weird that. Like, they call him the American, the British Jeffrey Dahmer because they were literally, like, active at the same time. So, it's not like, you know, he came after him mm -hmm. or whatever. So, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer, I, don't, I think they said this guy got caught first. So, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer is actually the American Dennis Nielsen. Perhaps. Um, yeah. It's just, it, it, the, what, they, the stories are very similar. Um. And, you know, so he realized um, at a young age that he was uh, gay, but he didn't have any sexual encounters with other boys as, like, an adolescent. Um, and then at the age of 16, he decided to do what a lot of, uh, of these killers do. He enlisted into the army. Uh, he became a cook in the army, and he served as a butcher in the army catering corps. So, you know, I feel like a lot of them, they join the army. I feel like they join it because they want some sense of, like, structure, usually. And then when they come out, the structure's gone again, and it's just like, you can't control yourself. Yeah, uh, all so, they have is the trauma that they've experienced in the army. The army, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because even, you know, people who you would describe as maybe having a good childhood and, quote, normal go into the military, and I feel like they always come out just different, just little, no matter who it is. A little bit messed up. 
honestly, I'll probably be a lot messed up. I would never make it. I, they would kick me out. I'd, I'd figure out a way to get myself up out of there. Y'all don't want me fighting for this country, no ways. Nope. We'll I'm gonna, go down. I'm going to go on record fight. and say, <laughs> if there's a draft, just go ahead and skip over me. I'm, I'm not going to be able to help y'all out. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, I would get pregnant for, <laughs> for that purpose. I ain't going to lie. I don't want no baby, but I can't, I can't go into New York. I'll do what I have to do. <laughs> I'll do it. Luckily, I have somebody on standby who would help me with that. I wouldn't have to go find a stranger. <laughs> Thank God. Unless uh, my man's already got drafted and sent off before me. God. In which case. Or dang, what if all the men are already gone? They've all been drafted. All of them? Then what Then what we gonna do now? Rob a sperm bank? <laughs> <laughs> now the that's the perfect crime. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, anyways, back to horrible murder stuff, which we haven't even gotten there. Surprise, uh, he's going to be a murderer. Oh. Uh, so, in 1972, Dennis left the army and he actually began, uh, police training for the Metropolitan Police and he moved to London to begin this training. He completed the training in 1973, uh, and around this time is when he discovered that he had a fascination with visiting the morgue and, uh, looking at the autopsied bodies. Um, and you know, even though being a police officer gave him easy access to these, uh, morgue and bodies, uh, he decided, you know, that wasn't enough to keep him around as a police officer. So he decided to resign and he became a recruitment interviewer, which most places just said he was a civil servant. So I guess he worked in the government somehow doing something, but it's not too important to the story. So. Uh, in 1973, uh, is when Dennis had his first, uh, bad brush with the police. You know, he was a policeman and now he's, you know, getting caught by the policeman. Uh, so he had met a young man named David Painter through his work and Painter claimed that Dennis had, I guess they were like hanging out and then Painter said that Dennis had taken photos of him while he was asleep. And this like made Painter mad, mad and like stressed uh, he got so stressed and mad that he ended up having to be hospitalized uh, because of it. Um, and Dennis was brought in for questioning, uh, but he ended up being released without charge. So I guess they didn't find any pictures or there was no evidence, so they released him. Uh, and then in 1975, he met a 20-year-old man named David Galachan. And Dennis saw him being threatened outside of a pub by two other men. And so Dennis intervened and he took David back to his home and the two of them spent the rest of that evening together. You know, they were talking, they were drinking. Uh, and that night David told Dennis that he had recently moved to London and that he was also gay. Um, he was also unemployed and he was living at a hostel at the time. And so that next morning, uh, Dennis was like, or they both agreed. They were like, Hey, we'll move in together. And so they did. So they moved in together. They found a bigger place to live in um, than where Dennis currently lived. And so the two moved into an apartment located at 195 Melrose Avenue in North London. And it was a ground floor apartment with a little garden out back. So, you know, it's pretty nice. You mm -hmm. know, if you got a dog, which I think Dennis did have a dog. His name was like Bleep. Um, you know, if you got a potty train on, you ride on that ground floor. Wow. It's, a, it's a good setup. What a great end into the story. And they just live happily ever after in their new apartment. That's awesome. See y'all next mm -hmm. week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, the two was living together. 
But David said that the two were not in a romantic relationship with each other. He basically was like, we're just roommates. But Dennis said that they were in a relationship with each other. And uh, I don't know if David said that they weren't in a relationship after, uh, you know, the story ends. And he's like, no, I wasn't in a relationship with him. But I, I don't know. Um, and at first, Dennis said the two lived pretty content, you know, in their little apartment together. But within a year of them moving in together, the relationship uh, became strained. Uh, so they started sleeping in separate beds. Um, and they started bringing other, like, sexual partners to the home just, like, casually. Um, and the two also began to argue frequently, and following one really bad argument in May of 1977, Dennis demanded that David leave the home, and at this point, the relationship ended. Uh, so over the next year or two, Dennis had relationships on and off with several other young men. Like, he really wanted a relationship, and he always wanted somebody to, like, come move into the house with him. Like, it seemed like he didn't just want to date somebody. It seemed like he wanted to get, get serious and have somebody move in. But none of these relationships lasted more than just a few weeks. And by 1978, Dennis's life was spiraling downhill. He was lonely. Uh, he couldn't find nobody to live with him. And he started, you know, drinking alcohol more and more, as one does. Uh, but his spiral, unfortunately, did not end at just drinking a lot of alcohol. Because on December 29th, 1978, he committed his first murder. On this night, Dennis was at Cricklewood Arms Pub, and he met a young boy who was 14 years old named Stephen Holmes. And Holmes was at the bar trying to buy some alcohol, but they were like, no, sir, you are too young. Um, he tried his best. Uh, so, <laughs> Dennis, uh, you know, I don't know what the age uh, to drink over there was at that time. Maybe 18. Some places it was 16. So, like, if it was 16, you know. He might could have passed, but it didn't work. He should have gone in, standing on his friend's shoulders in a trench coat. I would have really done it for him. Dang, that, yeah, that would have been a good idea. Or he could have put his dog on top of him. You can't not sell beer to a dog. That's true. Be like, it's my it's my third birthday. Yeah, because... We wanted dog years. <laughs> seven years every year. Speaking of dog, dogs drinking beer, Texas 21st slash third birthday is coming up, and I was going to get him some of that bush-like dog beer. It's kind of expensive. It's like 15 or $16 for a four-pack, and I'm like, you know what, man? I can just put you some water in a beer can and pour it out and make you think you drink a beer. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I just think about those shirts that say, in dog beers, I've only had one. <laughs> yeah, that seems like some shit Brandon will wear. <laughs> Every dad at the beach has one. Uh-huh. So, you know, Holmes, he was 14, couldn't buy no beer. Uh, so Dennis was like, hey, you know, you want to come back to my apartment? I got some alcohol there. We can drink, uh, you know, hang out. And so Holmes was like, yeah, I'll come. So he comes over, the two, you know, drink, they're listening to music, and so the next morning, after Holmes spends the night with Dennis, Dennis woke up, um, and he was afraid to wake up Holmes uh, because he was scared that Holmes was going to leave. Um, obviously, he was, he was going to leave. Uh, so Dennis caressed Holmes while he was sleeping, and he said that Holmes was going to stay with him over the new year, whether he liked it or not. So Dennis proceeded to straddle Holmes, then he grabbed a necktie, which he used to strangle him until he fell unconscious. But he wasn't dead. 
So he then took Holmes and drowned like his head in a bucket filled with water. Which is very odd. Yeah. Uh, and so after Holmes was dead, Dennis took his body, washed it in the bathtub, and then placed it back on the bed and again started caressing Holmes's body. Uh, Dennis then masturbated twice over the body, attempted to have sex with it, uh, but apparently it did not work out. Um, and so he ended up just sleeping next to the body for another night. Yeah. Yeah. And then after rigor mortis had passed, because obviously rigor mortis is like when your body is like stiff. And so after that had passed, he took Holmes's body and hid it under his floorboards. And you know, I said he had a ground floor apartment, so he mm-hmm. was able to put it under these floorboards. Mm-hmm. And so he kept Holmes's body under these floorboards for about eight months before he built a bonfire in his garden that I mentioned. He got a little garden in the backyard. Um, and he burned the body on August 11th, 1979. How did it not smell? Well, uh, we'll get to that. Um, but I'm sure it did smell. And uh, living in an apartment, I'm surprised nobody smelled anything. Hmm. And uh, this was the 70s, so you can't blame it on, you know, like, oh, if this was back in the 1500s, everything stinks. But I feel like in the 70s, it, it hmm. smelled normal. Yeah. And this was late 70s, so it was really 80s almost. Yeah, I also think, um, like, when you think, like, when you said that he buried him under the floorboard, all I can think of is that, like, Edgar Allan Poe poem where, like, yeah. you could hear the heartbeat. Yeah. That's what I think of. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in the Edgar Allan Poe poem, I feel like he hears the heartbeat or whatever because he's, like, nervous about what had just happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's freaking out. Um, but Dennis was not freaking out because, uh, you know, just after he burned uh, Holmes's body, he was ready to murder again. And so on October 11th, 1979, he met a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho at St. Martin's Lane Pub. He lured Ho back to his apartment with the promise of sex and then attempted to strangle him during what Dennis tried to pass off as, quote, bondage play. Uh, Luckily, Ho managed to escape and he reported the incident to the police. And the police questioned Dennis, um, but then Ho didn't end up pressing any charges. And I guess the police decided not to push the issue and it just kind of went away. But on December 3rd, 1979, Dennis finds his next murder victim, who was a Canadian tourist named Kenneth Ockenden. And again, he met him at a pub. And on this day, Kenneth had been sightseeing, you know, in the city. He was visiting some relatives. And when Dennis, you know, met this guy, uh, met uh, Ockenden at the bar, he was like, hey, you know, I live around here. I could show you some more, like, landmarks. And uh, the Canadian, like, tourist was like, yeah, that, you know, that would be fun. That would be cool. Uh, And then, not surprisingly, after they went to see a few more landmarks, Dennis was like, you know, hey, you want to come back to my house? We can, you know, have something to eat, have some drinks. And Ockenden was like, yeah, sure, I'll come back to your house. So... The, they went back to the house, you know, they ate together, had some drinks, and then Dennis was like, hey, you want to listen to some music? And he gives Ockenden, like, I don't know if he gave him a Walkman or one of the little CD players, but he gave him something that he listened to with, like, cord headphones. And so uh, the guy was listening to, you know, his music with some headphones, and I guess it was kind of a long cord because Dennis 
took uh, the cord from the headphones that the guy was listening to and strangled him with the cord. Um, and then he cleaned the body as he did uh, before with his first murder victim. And he slept with the body overnight. He also took photos of the body. And this time he had sex uh, also with the body and placed it under the floorboards just like he had his first victim. However, this time, instead of just leaving the body under the floorboard, he would take the body out frequently and talk to it as if Ockenden was still alive. So he would like pull the body out from under the floor and uh, talk, like set it up in a chair and talk to it. It uh, is something. So his third murder victim was uh, a person I was going to say a man, but he's not a man. It's a child. Um, his name was Martin Duffy, who was a 16-year-old who had hitchhiked to London without his parents knowing. And I would like to say, one of the articles I was reading, I think it was biography.com. I don't want to crap on them. But at first, they called this boy a homeless boy, which I mm -hmm. feel like is a negative connotation. Yeah. And so I was like, that just don't sound right. And so then when I looked into it, I was like, he was not homeless, he had hitchhiked to London and his parents didn't know. But, like, whenever Dennis found him, he had been sleeping at, like, the train station because he came to London and he didn't have no money to get back. And, obviously, he can't call his parents because he went there without knowing. And so, he was just kind of chilling until he could figure out how to get back. So, he was not homeless. Um, and even if he was, that would still be bad. But I just feel like that was negative connotation well, and I feel like it was just... Yeah, and then it's not. also one of those things that's hard because you don't want to call him a runaway because so often there's a negative connotation with that. Because so many people are like, oh, yeah. he ran away. He wanted to disappear. He might have not wanted to live with his parents. He yeah. might have wanted to have a nice European adventure, but he didn't want to get murdered. Yeah, I don't think... In, it, not only, it doesn't even sound like he was running away. It kind of just sounded like he wanted to like go to the city for a little bit. And then when he got there, he, he was like, maybe he got enough money to get there. But then he was like, man, I can't get back now. Shoot. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of what it seemed like to me. Because he was also 16. But anyways, Dennis saw him, and he invited him to come stay the night with him. And obviously, the kid was like, you know what? Yeah, that's good. It's better than sleeping at this train station. Um, and so, Dennis, come, Dennis takes him back to his house, and just as he did his other victims, he killed him. Uh, but this time, he placed the body in a kitchen chair. Then he placed it in the bed. Um, and once it was in the bed, he would repeatedly kiss the body and he would compliment it, like give it compliments and caress it before placing Martin's body in a wardrobe for two weeks. And then he placed it under the floors. So I don't know what the point in all that was, but there you have it. And uh, following this murder, he started killing with increasing frequently frequency um, and before the end of 1980 he had murdered another five victims and attempted to murder one more and most of these victims have not been identified um, except for one who was named Billy Sutherland and he was either one source said 26 one said 27 he was around 26 or 27 um, so but his final victim at this location uh, was a person named Malcolm Barlow. He was 23 years old, and Dennis had found him slumped against a wall outside his home. So, outside uh, Malcolm's home on September 17th, 1981. And so, uh, he, like, walked up to this, like, kid, or he's not a kid, but Malcolm, he was, you know, 
looked like he needed some help and he was like yeah you know I take medication for epilepsy um and my legs get weak so you know I'm just trying to walk it off and Dennis was like no no you need to go to the hospital so Dennis took him back to his house and then I guess the ambulance or whatever came and picked him up took him to the hospital you know he got a little help at the hospital and this kid or this guy he felt like when he got out of the hospital he was like I want to go back to this uh, man's house and tell him thank you for you know helping me and get me to the hospital um so when Malcolm went back to uh, Dennis's house, Dennis, you know, did his usual shit, got him to stay over. Uh, Malcolm fell asleep, and Dennis strangled him and stowed his body under the kitchen sink. So he's just like storing these like mm-hmm. all around this apartment. I don't know how big it is. Um, and so at this point, Dennis still had all of the bodies except for the first body mm-hmm. under uh, his floor in his house. Or in cupboards or under the sink. And obviously now these bodies were decomposing and they were emitting terrible odor. And there were bugs everywhere, including maggots and flies. Now, my question is, is he still living with David at this point? Nah, David's been gone. Okay, that's what Uh, I David left a while ago. I just wanted to double check because I thought he did, but I was like, you know what? I better check. David ain't got no, David ain't got no part in this. David left after they fought, and that's kind of when what, uh, what? Dennis went to a spiral. Dennis set, went the fuck off. Gotcha. Not well. Let the let the record show we don't blame David. If you if you're in a relationship and you want to get no. out, do not <laughs> do not hesitate. Just because you think the person might be a mass Heck murderer, no, get the fuck out if you got to. Because also one day if he had this type of mind, one day he could have killed David just because like. But, you know, if they were in a fight one day, David was like, I'm just going to leave you. And he'd be like, you ain't never going to leave me. Because that's kind of what it seems like he's killing these people because mm-hmm. he doesn't want them to leave. Yep. But, you know, he's got decomposing bodies literally all over his house. So he tried to get some what they called spray deodorants um, and insecticide. Uh, but it was not working. He was literally spraying, like, constantly, both of them. Uh, but the odor and the flies and maggots remained. So, in 1980, he ended up removing all of the bodies and dissecting them, and he was going to try to get rid of them. And so, partially, he was trying to get rid of them by boiling the skulls to remove the flesh. Um, He started placing the organs and the viscera in plastic bags to be thrown away. So, I guess he was was just, it seemed like, trying to get rid of them in all different ways, Mm -hmm. either to not get caught or just, like, get rid of it. He would even bury some of the limbs in the garden behind his apartment, and he buried some in the shed. He stuffed some of the torsos in suitcases, but he did all this just to, I guess, keep them out of the house until he was able to burn all of them. So he eventually burned them all in several bonfires, literally just behind his house. Mm -hmm. But obviously the smell of burning bodies is very distinct. And so to try to mask the smell, he would put a rubber tire on top of the burning pile. And I have never smelt a rubber tire or seen it, but Brandon says you're not supposed to burn tires. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't do it. If you're going to have a bonfire, you're not allowed to. I I think it's against the law. But Brandon has smelled a burning tire and he says that it smells horribly Mm -hmm. so he probably did that so the terrible rubber smell would kind of mask the Mm -hmm. smell of the bodies burning yeah and he was even so bold during these bonfires to let neighborhood children watch some of them like he was like he was actually having a bonfire like just wild 
And so in mid-1981, Dennis's landlord was like, hey, I'm trying to do some renovations to this apartment. You need to get out. And Dennis was like, well, I don't want to get out. And he was like, well, I'll give you a thousand pounds to get out. And then Dennis was like, okay, I'll get out. So he gets out. Um, and he decides to move to a top floor apartment. So complete opposite from his bottom floor. And this top floor apartment was at 23 Cranley Gardens in North London. And here he had no, no garden, no floorboards to stow the bodies. And he was like, you know what? This is going to be good. I'm not going to kill anybody anymore because now I don't have anywhere to put the bodies. Like he really thought he was going to stop killing. Um, because, you know, now he didn't have a convenient way to get rid of them. Um, but this wasn't going to stop him. Mm-hmm. And it didn't stop him. Because he killed three more people between his arrival at the place and um, between then and in February 1983. And these victims were later identified as John Howlett, Archibald Graham Allen, and Stephen Sinclair. And, you know, even though Dennis didn't have easy disposal options in this apartment, he found a way. He decided that what he was going to do, he boiled the heads, the feet, the hands. He would dissect the bodies into small pieces to be small enough pieces so he could flush them down the toilet. Uh, And he also would dispose of them in plastic bags. So he was literally flushing them down the toilet. And um, I know you're not, you're not even supposed to flush a tampon down the toilet. Mm. So I know good and well you can't flush a human remains down the toilet. Absolutely Just going to go and say that now. Uh, in In college... Um, our sorority house had a huge absolute poop explosion in the sorority house because girls were flushing <laughs> tampons. They had to remove the toilets. They had to do a snake. I mean, God, uh. the, the floor flooded. So I cannot imagine you, you know, throwing human remains down there. I mean, we've had a few poop explosions in our in our day. Uh, we had the poop explosion in our own small apartment that we lived in. Mm-hmm. No fault of our own. I think it was the people who moved out before us. I think they shitted and <laughs> deliberately clogged the pipes and left it that way all summer long till we came that August. That was on purpose. That's they 100%. wanted to embarrass me. They sabotaged They us. wanted me to have to sit in my bathroom while that maintenance man was in the bathroom with the snake going, God dang. Oh. Uh, while there was literal poop floating in the toilet as he was snaking the drain. <laughs> horrible. Horrible. There was shit coming out of the bathtubs. It was terrible. We got it fixed. We got it fixed. <laughs> but it was like our first week living there. <laughs> yeah. We literally, it literally clogged the first night we moved in. So like, it wasn't us. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't us. And even if it was us, it's because I used a lot of toilet paper. I used too much toilet paper, okay? Anyway. Um, but flushing body parts down the toilet is not a good, uh, disposal tactic. Mm-mm. Because in February 1983, one of the tenants in the apartment complex had called a plumber out. The plumber comes out with his snake drain and the, the plunger, and he just couldn't get it done. It literally reminded us in our apartment where we get the maintenance man out, he got the plunger, he got the snake, it don't work, so they gotta call him back up. So they call in the drain specialist, and they were called Dino Rod. And they're coming out to investigate the blockage in the building. So when the plumber arrives, he go, he went to the manhole outside, I guess, where everything was draining, to look. And in the presence of all the tenants, including Dennis, he found that some sort of, like, flesh was blocking the drain. Like, it was weird. He didn't know what it was. Um, but it was kind of late in the night when they got there. So since they couldn't figure out what it was, they were like, you know what? We're going to come back tomorrow when it's light outside, like 
brighter so we could see what's going on. But Dennis, you know, they was all watching the plumber getting in the manhole. I guess they didn't have nothing better to do. You always watch when a plumber comes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, obviously, at this point, Dennis was like, oh, shit. I'm about to get caught. They're going to figure out that I've been doing this. So, we tried to cover up his tracks by removing the remains from the drain. So, he's, like, literally in the manhole, like, taking this stuff out. Uh, So, he ended up, though, a downstairs neighbor saw him doing this. And she thought that was weird. Probably because she thought he was just, like, pulling some shit out of the drain. Um... You know, it's weird no matter how you slice it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the next day, the plumbers came back to further investigate. And they were confused, though, because most of what they had seen the night before was gone. Um, But there was still a little bit there. And when they looked at it, they were like, this looks like some bones and some flesh. Mm -hmm. So they decided to call the police. Probably a good move. And after the police arrived, they were already kind of thinking that this looks human. So they sent it off to be examined, and it was determined that it was, in fact, human flesh. Um, And one piece was even still so intact that they were able to say it was from a human neck, and you could still see a ligature mark on the piece of flesh. So, based on where this, uh, like, clog and flesh had been found, they could tell that it had been flushed from the top floor apartment, which was Dennis's apartment. So, they they went, and they were like, we gotta question this man, right? So, they went to his apartment. They waited outside that day of his apartment until he came home from work. And when he got home, he let them come inside the apartment. And when they entered, they immediately smelled the, you know, uh, like odor Ugh. of decay and everybody says it has a distinct smell you know it when you smell it i hope to never smell it mm-hmm. uh but they say you know it when you smell it um and at this point dennis was playing dumb he was like he asked Lisa, he was like why are y'all so interested you know in my drains um and they were like it was because these drains are clogged with human remains and they're coming from your apartment and he literally said good grief how awful and the police said, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? So the police, in his nice British way, was like, boy, don't try me today. <laughs> so Dennis responded calmly, and he admitted that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe. And uh, so when the police, they know, when they were there, they were like, okay, that makes sense because that's where the smell was coming from was the wardrobe. Uh, but they didn't open it because they were like, we know it's there. Um, and so then they asked, like, were there other body parts that needed to be found? And Dennis said, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here at the police station. So, obviously, he was arrested and taken to the police station. And at first, the police just thought he had killed one person. They literally kind of thought, you know, maybe this was just a random, like, crime of passion. He killed him and he was frantically trying to get rid of it. And that's why he was trying to flush down the toilet. And so, they weren't necessarily, like, scared of him. I think even in the Rotten Mango episode, she said that they kind of, like, put him in the police car, like, without handcuffs. Um, or kind of chilling, which I'm like, I don't care how many people you killed. You're getting handcuffs on if you're in a police car with me. Mm-hmm. But anyways, the police, you know, they thought he killed one person. But Dennis quickly confessed. And he said that he thinks he had probably killed around 15 or 16 people. And the police were shocked. And so, the next day at the police station, he was interviewed. And he confessed to everything in excruciating detail. He even admitted to 
attempting to murder seven other people that they may, wouldn't, you know, they're not going to find the bodies of them. And if they never came forward, they never would have known. But he admitted to that. Um, but at no point, he didn't show any remorse or anything, but he did appear eager to help the police with getting the evidence against him. And he even told them his old address and told them, like, where to go find, like, different things that were still there, like, in his disposal techniques. They still found, like, because, you know, he burned the bodies, but obviously bone doesn't completely burn up. Yeah. And he tried to smash it, but they could still find, like, bone fragments in the yeah. garden. So he basically just sang like a canary. Yeah, and it's weird because they said he didn't feel bad, but like, and it also doesn't seem like he's doing it for fame. Like, it's not like he was trying, it doesn't seem like he was trying to be into the most famous serial killer, blah, blah, blah. It's just weird. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Ed Kemper. Like, he just, he just will chat and he'll just be like, yes. this is what I did. Yes. Uh, but like with Ed Kemper, it's like, he, like, kind of wants to be your friend, you know. He's just very, like, yeah, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like with this guy, I don't know exactly, like, if he was, like, charismatic or, like, what. Because, I mean, it seemed like he didn't have very many friends. But that's what it reminds me of. Like, yeah. He's just, just very matter-of-fact, like, yeah, this is what happened. I'll tell you everything, you know. Which maybe when he got caught, he was just, like, well, what's the point in trying to hide it at this point? I'm, pr I'm going to go down either way. Um... So his trial commenced October 24th, 1983, and he was charged with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. Um, but the funny thing is, so, you know, he had literally confessed to all of this, but he pled not guilty to all charges because he cited diminished capacity due to insanity. So, the defense tried to rely on determinations by two psychiatrists that said that Dennis's childhood had led him to have this diminished capacity, uh, but this didn't work uh, because there was literally so much evidence against him, including testimony from people who he had, like, attempted to kill, um, and there was physical evidence, like crazy, including photos of the murders. Um, they had literal, like, like bone fragments. They had the pot he used to boil, like, the bodies. And uh, now this was weird. This was a little side note on one of the things. It says that this pot is now on display at the Black Museum at Scotland Yard. Oh. I don't know what the Black Museum is, but there you have it. In case you want to know. And so, the prosecution, yeah. The prosecution, they presented their own psychiatrist, and he said that Dennis was not insane. He was just manipulative. He did have some uh, signs of mental abnormality, which don't we all? Uh, but nevertheless, he was still cognizant of and responsible for his actions. And in the end, the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict, and the judge ended up agreeing to accept a majority verdict, which I don't know if that's allowed in America, and I never heard of that. Because usually when that happens, it's just a mistrial. Uh, but this is the UK. So they ended up delivering a guilty verdict on all murder counts. And the judge sentenced Dennis to life in prison without the possibility of parole for at least 25 years. And on May 10th, 2018, um, Dennis was taken to a hospital um, complaining of severe stomach pains. And he was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm which they repaired, uh, but the repair didn't work because he then suffered from a blood clot as a complication of the surgery, and he apparently died a very painful death on May 12, 2018. His body was cremated on June 
2018, and a funeral service was held for him with five people in attendance, three of which were prison officers. And this was the most one of the weirdest things to me. Uh, apparently, there is a Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in London called the Chamber of like Horrors Wax Museum. Mm-hmm. And it has a wax statue of him that was put up April 17th, 1984. Might I say, it was too damn soon. He literally stopped killing in like 1981. And this photo was dated like 1984. So I found that odd. Um, but that is the story of Dennis Nelson, who is also known as the uh, British or UK Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, that is very interesting. The Madame Tussauds, I agree, probably a little too soon. But to be honest with you, I think as yeah. much as I love true crime, I think the idea of having a wax figure of any serial killer is odd because it's very much, it's like a statue, you know, it's like glorifying them whereas like yeah i've been to museums before where they'll have like letters written by like um charles manson in prison like that's just like a thing you know it's just like a you know no one made that it's just it's interesting it's just a thing that was there yeah but also yeah this one was really weird i guess the reason that we refer to him as like the the british jeffrey dahmer is because I just feel like maybe, like, the United States sensationalized things more. So, I feel like he has more notoriety mm-hmm. than, you know, yeah. this guy. But, yeah, it's interesting to see the parallels of him, like, hiding body parts everywhere. Uh, but he also didn't eat anyone. No. He boiled stuff, but he didn't eat it. It Um, seems like he just boiled it simply out of necessity. And uh, as someone, so in college, Taylor will know, one of my roommates, uh, one of our roommates, uh, but I was living with her at the time, she (laughs) was an anthropology Mm -hmm. major and she had to take the bones of a dead beaver and she had to put them and cook them (laughs) in a crock pot and she cooked them in a crock pot in in our dorm room for like a full semester and so she would like cook them in the crock pot and then she'd dry them out in the window seal and then she'd cook them in the crock pot again and to get like the oils out um and that was like her semester long project um i don't remember it smelling especially bad but it definitely was odd when people would come in to our apart or uh, our dorm room and be like why the hell y'all got so many bones i'm like i don't know i just i'm i'm a i'm a parks and recreation major once they were in the coffee can, they had been in there for a while because she put them, you know, in that Folgers coffee mm-hmm, can. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, once they had been closed up there for a while, she was like, hey, one day she's like, you want to smell this? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And she opened it. They had, they stunk. They did not smell good. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a weird time. And it's weird that the school would have you do that, knowing you live in a dorm room. But, you know, who's to say? Who's to say? I've never done it, and I don't ever plan on doing it, but if I ever have to do something like that, I guess I'll I'll call her up. Call, call her up. the anthropology department and see stayed up. <laughs> but, yeah. Thank you for that story. It was um, interesting. I, I thought welcome. about doing that story, um, and then you beat me to the... That was one of the options for me, and then you beat me to the punch. So, but... These are both stories that I didn't... I, I didn't know much about them. I just looked up, you know, UK murders and they both came up same 
so what's our theme for next week our theme for next week is north carolina so gonna be kind of we could do about anything as long as it's north carolina um me and taylor experts Mm -hmm. on the subject we've both lived in north carolina our whole lives so you know you're gonna be getting some maybe you'll get some eyewitness reports i don't know let me pull some shit out Mm -hmm. uh let's see follow us on instagram twitter uh join our facebook group email us at this is gonna sound weird at gmail.com follow our uh tiktok page let's see we got anything else probably Um, not probably not um next week um it's north carolina get hype um we don't have anything else to say north carolina see you raise up um but yeah (laughs) i think other than that the only thing we've got to say is stay weird goodbye goodbye